0: like its mobile incarnation, the Angry Birds movie 2 simply pelts you with loud shrieking diversions. The filmmaking has leveled up, but you're still wasting your time. That's from Chandler levack of Globe and Mail. The movie we're reviewing is Angry Birds 2. That review coming up momentarily. Once again, welcome as always to Cinephile. Appreciate your support. Appreciate you checking us out. We've also got a very special guest, Jacob Estes. He's the director of a new film called Don't Let Go, starring uh, David Ielowo, Michael T. Williamson. And uh, it's an excellent crime thriller. I look forward to talking to Jacob, not only about this film, but some of his other work as well. So all that more coming up. And speaking of the fact it's a crime film, for Mount Rushmore, Joe and I are going to talk about our favorite crime films of all time. It's a pretty... uh, Tough list to get through all of them, but that's what we're going to attempt to do. Uh, And as always, keep those reviews coming. We always appreciate the fact that you're giving us some love on Apple Podcasts. Please do subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe again. Tell other people subscribe, rate, and review. I uh, got this for you from uh, the bad guy 127. Yes, love me some Adnan. I love this pod. Always fun, light, full of great movie info. I can trust AD to give me his honest opinion. I don't always agree with his opinions, but I know they'll be unbiased and come from an informed place. Five stars. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Driver person says, uh, "Glad you're back. It would be great if you reviewed a movie from the last." few decades or so. Maybe something great we should all revisit or something obscure and wonderful that might have been missed. Keep up the excellent work. So I love that idea from Driver Person. So, in fact, I'm going to talk about the film Tootsie today, which I re-watched recently on TCM. I love that idea of re-watching uh, some great classics. D.T. Heron as well. Uh, Charlie's Alex as well. Uh, Adnan's love for movies is unmatched which always makes fun for discussion in addition to his insightful reviews he includes fun segments like Mount Rushmore and Botta Binge the interviews are great the show would still be tremendous if it were just Adnan and Joe talking with their favorite films there you go Joe some love for you as well buddy alright I love hearing it <laughs> also one more from Grass Killer enjoy the new Adnan podcast the addition of the Soprano segment is perfect anything Mount Rushmore is spot on the interviews continue to be stellar Adnan can have the best laugh as a broadcaster though I do question his obsession with Martin Scorsese three smiley faces laughing keep churning out great material well Grasskiller, Killer just for you you're going to love this story so the Irishman is, of course, coming out uh, to the New York Film Festival September 27th. It has been a long story of the fact that Martin Scorsese and company want this movie in the theaters. So let me give you the backstory here first. So Marty's going to deal with Paramount. He's going to reunite with De Niro, first film since Casino. And they got about a $100 million budget. And it's going up and up. And Paramount says, you know what? We can't do this. And Marty goes, are you serious? They go, no, we can't do it. Why is this so expensive? And he's saying, because of the fact I'm using a lot of this new technology— which is called de-aging. And I'm going to tell this story of De Niro and Pacino. And it's the first time I'm working with Pacino from 30 until 70. Ha, you know, Pacino's playing Jimmy Hoffa. De Niro's playing Frank Sheena's right-hand man. It's very expensive. Paramount box. Netflix comes in says, Marty, whatever you want. Whatever you want. You want Final Cut? Of course you get that. You're an eight-time Best Director nominee. That's the most of any living director. You name the budget. We got you. So the final budget, depends on who you talk to, is either $160 million or it's $200 million. But Marty, nobody loves cinema more than him. Nobody loves going to the movies more than him. Nobody loves the theater experience more than him. Maybe Christopher Nolan and Spielberg. Those three guys love it more than anybody. So Marty's made a deal with the devil here. He's going to deal with Netflix to make the movie he wants to make. And by the way, Final Cut, the movie's coming in at 210 minutes. Three and a half hours. That's right, baby. Three and a half hours of Pacino and De Niro. And guess who else they got along for the ride? They had to cajole Pesci out of retirement. They got Harvey Keitel back with the boys. And why not Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano are along for the ride as well. But Marty loves movies in the theater. So Netflix is an impasse here with theater owners saying, please, can we get this movie in theaters? And AMC is going, are you kidding me? All of these movies that come out, they play in theaters, and then there's a three-month window before they come on DVD. Netflix, you guys are trying to bypass this, which is not fair. A, you don't release box office grosses. B, everything's available on your streaming service. In the case of Roma, it was in some theaters, but within a month, it was on The streaming service, Netflix. And so the theater owners are saying, if you want to release The Irishman, you can do that November 1st, but then it can't be on Netflix. Again, respect the fact everybody else, all these other companies are playing by the same rules of the 90-day window. And Netflix is saying, are you insane? Of course we're not going to do that. The whole point is we're getting people to pay for our streaming service, to pay the 15 bucks a month, and then boom, look what we got. A new Martin Scorsese gangster film on Netflix. That's the way this works. So ultimately, they could not reach a decision. Marty even called the theater owners himself. Could you imagine getting a phone call from Martin Scorsese? Please put my movie in the biggest theater possible. You know, he views it like the way Nolan viewed Dunkirk. You've got to watch it in the theater. I don't want my film being seen on Netflix in 15-minute intervals while people go to the bathroom or check social media or change their kid's diaper or whatever. And ultimately, the answer is no. You're going to have to watch the film In some independent cinemas, November 1st. November 1st, some indie cinemas are going to carry The Irishman. Then November 27th, it's going to be streaming on Netflix, available everywhere. So, of course, I've got to see the movie in the biggest, baddest theater possible, which is why September 27th, it is debuting, the world premiere at the New York Film Festival. And props to all of you, because I don't remember the name itself specifically, but it was like early August. And I, no, actually, no, it was actually my birthday. It was July 29th. And somebody tweeted, I know what Adnan Verk is doing September 27th. And I checked my Twitter, and boom, they said, you can either get these, you know, insane passes, which are like, I don't even know, thousands of dollars. It's like the ultimate super deluxe pass, the New York Film Festival, or opening night pass. So within seconds, of course, I'm online. I got my credit card. Boom, let's go. Opening night pass is you get tickets guaranteed for opening night plus 10 other tickets to films at the New York Film Festival, which is taking place September 27th to October 6th. So it's 450 bucks. That's my birthday present to myself, which I did as I'm taking my family out for lunch that day. So here's the big news. So last week, they announced... On the Thursday, August 27th, you can redeem your tickets. Just because you bought that package, which I did, I have the receipt, all that, you still have to go on at 10 a.m. and make sure you redeem your tickets. So the day before, I called the New York Film Festival Hotline. I said, how does this work? Okay, at 10 o'clock a.m. tomorrow, you're going to get an email, and when you get that email, you press that link, and in that link, you're going to follow it. It's very straightforward. You have to add one ticket for your opening night selection and then get 10 other tickets for a variety of other films. Great. Can you tell me what else is playing? almodovar has got a new film called Pain and Glory, of course, Pedro Almodovar, the great filmmaker. Uh Time Me Up, Time Me Down, All oh, My About My Mother, Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, he's got a new film out? Yeah, great. Okay, I, I remember, oh yeah, I did hear about that at Cannes. Awesome. Uh, Olivier Sayas has a new film out. Joker's out. I'm like, great. When is Joe? Oh Joker's playing September 28th. Wide release October 4th. You can see it a week early. Oh, but that's not available. Hang on a second. I paid $450. Bucks. Well, guess what? You can't get Joker, that's $40. Bucks. Okay, well, I want to see Motherless Brooklyn. That's Ed Norton's new film. I love the book. I borrowed it from my friend Cab 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Ago. Uh, shout out to uh, 803 40 Gerard Street in downtown Toronto. I took Motherless Brooklyn off his bookshelf. It's a fantastic book about a detective with Tourette's and Norton starring in, writing and directing it. I'll get tickets to that. Well, you can't do that one either. What do you mean? That's a closing night selection. That's different. Okay, whatever. I don't give a damn. As long as I get my Irishman ticket, I'm good. I don't sleep that night, Joe. The next morning, uh, I'm waiting at 10 o'clock, giving one of my kids a bath. No, I still don't get any email yet. Oh, 10:05, it came. Boom. I gotta go. I press the link. I start falling through it, but because I'm an idiot and I got greedy and I felt so bad I said you know what my wife really wants to go as well let me just see because of course she loves Scorsese she loves Pacino she loves De Niro we'll get a sitter et etc I'll see if I can get two for opening night and then just do nine tickets the rest of the way. So for the Thursday night, because it allows you to choose number of tickets, zero, one, or two. So I go two tickets for Thursday night debut, which by the way, again, I had checked with the guy. I said, how important is it? Because there's multiple screenings. He goes, you want to get the 3P or the 8P at Alice Tully Hall. I'm like, okay, that means Scorsese, De Niro, but you know they're going to be there? He's like, well, we can't say with specificity, but think about it. This is the world premiere of their film. You bet your ass. Marty's going to be there. I would assume Bob's going to be there. And probably Al, why not? Maybe Joe Pesci will show up. And hey, Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano and Harvey Keitel might show up. I mean, who the hell knows? Maybe Spielberg's going to show up. Hey, here's my buddy Marty. Just want to come say hi. So I said, okay, it's got to be the 3P or the 8P. Because he goes, there's other screenings. I mean, the film is going to be shown in six theaters or something like that on that Thursday. But you got to be at the Alice Tully 3P or 8P. I'm like, got it. I start firing through other tickets. I want to go see Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, classic film which I've never seen before in 1978, and apparently it's incredible on the big screen. I've never seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller, classic Robert Altman film starring Warren Beatty, a Western back in the mid-'70s. That's playing? Oh, terrific. And, of course, I don't know my full schedule with MLB Network, NHL Network, and Zone, but I'm like, I'm hoping I'll be available. If I'm not, maybe I'm going to discuss this with Joe. We'll give the tickets to you guys. If I can't go see these movies, somehow through Cinephile, I'll just say, hey, who wants two tickets to go see uh, whatever film I can't go see? Boom! I'll give it to you guys. But the point is, just get the tickets and go. Right? I go through it. I go to the end. I try it. Boom! Doesn't work. Literally says you have um, elapsed the number of tickets available. I'm like, oh my god, I'm an idiot. It's because I went for those two opening night, which you can't do. The guy said to me specifically, it's one ticket. I got Grady. Damn it! Okay, start over again. Okay, start over again. I go to 8P. 8P sold out. Joe, I got the link at 10:07. I did it at 10:08. At 10.11, the 8P is gone. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. This is the Black Tie event, premier event, Marty, Al, Bob, And it's already gone. All the tickets, gone. Okay, now I better get that 3P. I start going through it to get the 3P. Again, I pick, and now I do it properly this time, okay? I'm not an idiot. One ticket for 3P and then 10 other tickets. And how about this? The other advice the guy gave me, which is a great bit of advice. I said, listen, my wife loves this movie more than anybody. She's just like me. He goes, here's good news for you. The next day, the next day on the Saturday, Sorry, I keep saying Thursday. I'm an idiot. Friday night, the movie's premiering. September 27th. September 28th at noon, The Irishman is playing. Of your 10 remaining tickets, you can use two tickets there. Perfect. We'll get a sitter. We can go get two tickets there. Even better, at 4.15 on the Saturday, I say, what is this? It just says, uh, on directing, colon, Martin Scorsese. I don't know if it's a new direct uh, documentary about Marty, but whatever it is, it, I'll get that too. So of the 10 remaining tickets, in addition to opening night Friday, I got two for the Irishman, noon Saturday. So think about this, folks. I'm going to watch it at 3 p.m. Friday. I'm then going to watch it again the next day at noon in addition to this Scorsese documentary, and then I'm picking three other movies, two tickets per appearance. I go to the end of it, doesn't work. Again, vouchers elapsed. I'm now having a heart attack. I call the New York Film Festival hotline. Nothing, leave a message. I don't know what else to do. I try it again. doesn't work. Your tickets have a lap. Your vouchers are gone. I'm like, oh my God, I'm $450 gone. I'm, I'm hyperventilating now. I call back 10 minutes later, nothing, leave a message. Call back 10 minutes later, call the message, do the thing. I go, I gotta go. I get in the car, I start driving, because it says the preferred option is to do this online, but if you'd like to do it in person, you can go to New York City, the New York Film Festival box office. I live 35 minutes, door-to-door, ho ho to Manhattan. I'm in the car now, I'm speeding. I get across the GW Bridge, I decide to call the hotline again, boom, somebody answers. I pull over. Michael Dunn, who is my hero, who is the best person you're going to meet. And Michael Dunn, I explain the situation to me, he goes, okay, I think I understand what happened. Because you incorrectly tried it, the system is basically saying your vouchers are gone. I said, okay, but I still have those tickets. Well, no the vouchers have been used, but you don't have the tickets. He goes, but don't worry, sir. I'm going to get my IT guy on the line. We're going to take care of this. You're going to be fine. I said, listen, Mike, the AP is already gone. He goes, well, let's be honest. Those are probably all studio heads, you know, fellow actors, directors, friends of people. You know, those are going to be gone quickly, but don't worry. As long as you're Alice Tully Hall, 3P or 8P, you're good. I said, am I going to guarantee the 3P or am I going to be in some you know, crappy theater in Greenwich somewhere watching this thing? He goes, don't worry. We, fingers crossed. I said, do you want me to come to the box office? I'm in the city. I'm 10 minutes away. That's okay. Just go. You're fine. All right. I start driving home. I get back. I'm almost home in New Jersey. He calls back. Let's do it again. All right. I talked to the IT. I go through it again. Doesn't work. Another heart attack. Now he's confused. He goes, I talked to the IT guy. You should be fine. Let's try it again. Try it again. Doesn't work. I said, Mike, I can get back across the bridge. He goes, no, it's okay. We're going to be all right. I'm just praying now. I'm sweating bullets. Two hours later, he calls me back. All right, I've spoken to the IT department. It's rectified. Let's do this again together. I'm like, oh my God, please God. It's now 2.30 in the afternoon. I am thinking in four and a half hours, guarantee these tickets are gone. He goes, listen, sir, you have to understand, these are not available to the general public though. The general public cannot buy these single pass tickets until September 5th. So the only people right now who are securing tickets are people like yourself who paid the $450 for opening night plus 10 tickets. I said, but that could be a million people. It's New York City for God's sakes. How many people is this theater holding? He goes, we're going to be okay we start going through it step by step and sure enough bam tickets secured within five minutes the vouchers sent to my phone i'm going to print them out treat them like gold The bottom line is this. Michael Dunn is an absolute champ. People go to social media all the time and blast people. Michael Dunn is a good guy. I immediately said to him, tell me who your boss is, what your supervisor's email is. I sent an email. and said, this guy's unbelievable. I suffered seven heart attacks. But I'm going to be at the first ever screening of The Irishman, 3 p.m., Alice Tully Hall, in addition to seeing the film the very next day. And by the way, that Scorsese on directing thing, that's a talk that he's holding. So not only am I going to watch The Irishman and back to back days but i'm then going to be in a theater watching my favorite filmmaker talk about film joe this was an unbelievable roller coaster ride
1: oh my goodness congratulations you're going to go see you're going to hear him talk about the film and so so much work has been put into this film it's been years in the making that's really cool congratulations
0: Thanks so much, man. Now we've got to talk. We've got to figure out here with Cadence 13. I don't know if there's a press line. Is there anything we can do as far as uh, manipulating my way backstage, perhaps a days in advance? I, that This may be a separate issue we can discuss, but yes. It, I don't know I don't know if any press is available, but bottom line is this. I will be there. We can figure out a method I can, uh, I don't know, live. T- <laughs> I was just say live tweet. I, I'll do it. You know what we can do, Joe? I'll do a podcast right afterwards, right? I'll see the film at 3P, uh, literally 7 p.m. I just walked out of the theater. Here's my podcast. Here's my five-minute review, and we'll go from there.
1: Love it. Love that idea. Stay tuned, everyone.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Stay tuned for more from the Irishman. All right, let's quickly get through this review of Angry Birds 2. Uh, It's fine. Quite honestly, Labor Day weekend is a time where there's not many strong films being released. We're all waiting for the summer movies, which are a lot of fun, but they're they're popcorn pictures. Once those are done, we can start to focus on the real awards bait, Um, and those films haven't come out yet. It generally starts around September, even October now. So Angry Birds 2, listen, it's fine. I took my kids to go see it. Um, You know, it's decent animation. It moved along uh, at a decent clip, but I I didn't find it particularly funny. I thought it was... uh foolish and featherweight, more than anything, to be honest with you, that's why I jot it down to myself. The good news is it's about an hour and a half, so it's not very long. I mean, listen, if you know anything about The Angry Birds, you know that it's silly, goofy, fun, but I didn't think, and I watch every kid's movie, I did not think this was particularly strong compared to all the other kid's movies that I generally end up seeing. So honestly, I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. There's nothing special about it. It's got an acclaimed cast, the likes of Josh Gad, Jason Sudeikis, uh, the sight gags you'd expect, uh, the toilet humor you'd expect. There's, I'd say the best scenes actually takes place in a bathroom. So yes, a movie which is really, and some bathroom humor the best scene actually takes place with a fight which takes place in a bathroom involving the urinal toilet and all the rest of it if you don't have high expectations you'll be fine with it that would be Angry Birds 2 currently in theaters I'm giving it a couple of Maple Leafs as far as movies to focus on uh, in the weeks ahead I mentioned Motherless Brooklyn I came in for that plus the Venice Film Festival is going on right now Obviously, I'm not there, nor is Joe. One day we'll get in the gondola and experience it. From now, uh, we'll talk more about the Venice Film Festival and what those movies are like uh, next week on Cinephile uh, once I'm able to read some reviews and see what some of the critics are saying about those films. In the meantime, some entertainment news. Alex Trebek is back to work at Jeopardy! He's done with chemotherapy. That is incredible news. The great Canadian is back doing what he does best. Uh, he's on set taping the 36th season of the Beloved Trivia show. He said, It's another day at the office for me, an exciting day because so many great things have been happening. Uh, Trebek revealed in March he has been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer as completed as cancer treatments. I've gone through a lot of chemotherapy, and thankfully that is now over. I'm on the mend, and that is all I can hope for right now. Back in May, Trebek said he was in near remission. He never took a break from his hosting duties during treatment. Now he's back for another season of the long-running show. Jeopardy begins airing its 36th season this fall. No bigger fan than my man Dan Stanzik, my good buddy and former producer of Cinephile. And shout-out to Jim Stanzik, his brother, who is still devoted and subscribing to Cinephile. Many, many thanks. Uh, I appreciate all those still watch, uh, still listening and supporting the pod like the great Jim Stanzik. Also, how about this, kids? You can take a college cal- class with Matthew McConaughey. University of Texas at Austin announced last week it has appointed Matthew McConaughey as a professor at the Moody College of Communication beginning with the fall 2019 semester. Between roles voicing a beetle in Kubo on the Two Strings and battling Idris Elba in the Dark Tower, it turns out McConaughey has found time to serve as a visiting instructor in the school's radio, television, and film department since 2015, having developed and co-taught a class on film production with faculty member and director Scott Rice. The class has studied some of McConaughey's own works. It's a class I wish I could have taken when I was in film school, said McConaughey, who earned his film degree in '93. A likable actor is, to no surprise, also a highly likable professor, having earned respect among college leadership for his personal investment in student success and having an infection passion for teaching. Per IndieWire, McConaughey has earned a perfect score on Rate My Professor, albeit from only two reviews, which have classified him as inspirational and hilarious. McConaughey as professor, how much would you pay for this, Joe?
1: I would pay all of my college tuition for this class only, I would love to take this class and even though'm I assume he takes it very seriously, I just really hope he's just telling anecdotes the entire time from out through his career like <laughs> classic late night talk show style.
0: Right. Look at how much weight I lost for Dallas Buyers Club. Then I didn't eat for a week. Okay then I then, then I was with DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street and here's how he came up with the whole mm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. which apparently is his own uh, acting he does that himself by the way apparently Scorsese and DiCaprio saw him doing that on set and said we gotta put that in the movie that was one of the funniest parts of the film uh, lastly Valerie Harper who played Rhoda Morgenstern the brash Bronx accented sidekick to the Mary Richards character on the Mary Tyler Show, went on a to top line spinoff Rhoda passing away after being diagnosed with lung and brain cancer in 2009 she was 80 years of age Harper won four Emmys for the two hugely popular 1970s shows performed on the stage and big screen as well as appearing on dozens of other series uh, though she was diagnosed with cancer 10 years ago she continued working and competed on Dancing with the Stars in late 2013 sad news there is as far as Valerie Harper certainly an actress that many people loved and um, honestly you can appreciate her work not only the Mary Tyler Moore show but those other films as well it's now time for our special guest All right, the film that we're talking about is Don't Let Go, and it's a pleasure to have the director, Jacob Estes, joining us now. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for joining us today on Cinephile.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Terrific film. I was so happy I got to see it, and uh, it's one of those that hits the ground running and never lets up, and I... I often think about one of the theories I heard in film school, which is that you've got 10 minutes to get the audience hooked. And in your case, um, you clearly don't waste any time. For those who unaware of the storyline, I'll give a little bit. I don't want to give too much. But Detective Jack Radcliffe gets a shocking phone call of his recently murdered niece, Ashley. Working together across time, they race to solve the crime before it can happen. How did you, did you first come up with this theory of having a murder, which is the fulcrum upon which the entire plot resonates, and yet you've got this whole... Time travel, or you could say, uh, shifting time continuum, affecting the entire story.
2: But well, I just thought that, um, in the middle of all of this, like horrific violence uh, that we're experiencing culturally, and you know, uh, some of us personally, the idea that we could get a phone call from um, the past, um, that we could uh, rescue our, our, our dead loved one. Uh, was an incredibly hopeful uh, thought and uh, something that I wanted to pursue.
0: Uh, The film premiered at Sundance, and uh, obviously you've had time to kind of look at it since then. How does that um, affect you, Jacob, if at all? Once it's actually screened, do you make edits? Do you look at different things? Or do you say, you know what, this is the film as it was intended, and um, I'll just uh, write it out the way it is?
2: Yeah, we um, premiered at Sundance, and... uh, It was the first time that I got to see the movie in front of a Sundancey audience, let's say. And um, seeing the movie through the audience's eyes um, gave me some insight and Ah. uh, caused me to think about what I wanted to uh, do with the movie, if anything. And uh, even reading some of the criticism uh, gave me some insights and, uh, I went back to the drawing board a little bit with, um, Jason Blum and with David Oyelowo. Uh, and we pulled out, uh, the first cut that I ever did as a movie and examined, you know, what I loved about that and, um, uh, sort of surgically transplanted some of those, um, things that I was initially in love with back into the, the movie that is now in theaters.
0: Well, good for you for at least saying, you know what, I, I want to at least see what others are doing and see. Um, I, I appreciate what others take in stock. Because listen, the entire effort I'm sure is collaborative. Listen, you did an enormous amount of effort with this in terms of uh, putting all the pieces together. But credit to you for at least um, you know, adjusting it and making some moves, which I'm sure you're doing the entire time. You know, in many ways, I look at the whole shifting of it and maybe think of Memento, which is a film I adore. Christopher Nolan's film way back when. Did you uh, draw any ambition yep. or complexity from that film at all?
2: I, I'm a big fan of Memento and I, I don't like to compare my movie to Memento because that's, you know, like comparing my movie to Lawrence of Arabia or something like that, you know? <laughs> um, but when I, when I uh, did, um, uh, when I wrote the script and I thought about what sort of the cops were, uh, Memento definitely popped up on, on, you know, in my mind and we, uh, went and screened it and looked at it and examined it and uh, along with a number of other movies.
0: Well, it's funny. I also think I, mean, I think of Time Travel, of course, they get Back to the Future and, uh, and Back to the Future 2. Doc <laughs> tells Marty our only chance to repair the yeah. present is the past, which is actually accurate yeah. in your story as well.
2: Well, actually, I just sat and watched uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with my nine-year-old son uh, last night and he was asking me all kinds of questions about the timeline continuum <laughs> whether
0: it was plausible or not <laughs> oh that's funny I'm glad I you get to movies. share that moment with him uh, David Ayello is a terrific actor and I really uh, liked his performance in this film Jacob because you know in other films listen he, was, he played Dr. King obviously and, and Selma and he's uh, an actor of quite some dignity but I like the fact here he gets stretched a little bit you know this is like a, a true action movie crime thriller you kind of get to see him running around and racing against time and uh, what was it like working with Oyelowo well, David
2: is an incredible partner and right from the get-go, uh, when you first read the script and wanted to sit down and meet, we started to have a, a deeply honest conversation both about his career and my career and his ambitions and my ambitions and the uh, value of the script. And, um, we, uh, the script wasn't necessarily written for, for uh, a person who looked like David. It was set on a farm in a, in a, a white community, uh, in the Midwest. Um, so to reimagine the movie around David meant to sort of dive deeply into a, a different kind of family and a different kind of culture. Um, and, and we did that together and it was a wonderful process. Um, he, he, uh, he and I, uh, both, uh, went to the LAPD and found him a, uh, police officer, a LAPD detective who he could shadow and he spent weeks shadowing that person and sending me recordings of that person's voice. And then he transformed his own voice to match that voice quite effectively. Uh, so this is a deeply committed actor, uh, who's incredibly passionate about the work he does. And, and, uh, uh, when you have a partner like that, you just thank your lucky stars.
0: Yeah, Manola Dargis is a great film critic of the New York Times, and she gave your film a positive review. She said of Oyelowo, with his natural gravity and grounded physicality, he's one of those screen performers who can hold the frame simply by holding still. That's a real compliment to his kind of acting, isn't it?
2: It is. um, And I think it also, you know, sort of speaks to what's in the movie, right? Uh, He has some, even when he's holding still, there's some action or some intention that's, you know... uh, bubbling inside of his mind and 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 you can read it on his face he he's available um he's emotionally available uh as he is in life he is as an actor
0: yeah, it's a terrific cast. Uh, we're talking right now with Jacob Essis. The film is called Don't Let Go. Make sure you check it out. It's available in theaters right now. Good cast here. You also got Michael T. Williamson. Of course, people we'll remember him from Forrest Gump. Uh, Heat, many other films. Brian Tyree Henry. He was great in uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Alfred Molina, an actor I always like seeing pop up. And Storm Reed playing the girl. Ashley, where did you cast her? I thought she was um, very uh, self-aware and uh, really in the moment. I really liked her performance a lot.
2: Yeah, Storm is an amazing actor. Uh, We uh, decided to go really wide and look uh, all over the place for the person who would play opposite David, because it had been my experience from making another movie where there were a lot of kid actors, Mean Creek, uh, that, you know, it's not necessarily about the acting experience that a kid has, it's about their experience that they have, uh, and uh, so I didn't necessarily think we had to cast somebody who had starred in A Wrinkle in Time or not. Um, but then uh, Storm came in and auditioned, and it was just unbelievably evident that she had emotional maturity. She was an incredible actor, uh, and uh, she made herself available to go do a chemistry read with uh, David at his house. Uh, which basically means you know you get an opportunity to preview uh, what it would be like to, to make a movie with these two people. Um, and by the end of that chemistry read, uh, my casting director was there with a video camera filming it, and she was crying. And I looked at her, uh, <laughs> and I sort of knew right then and there that we had found our, our person. And... Um, and as soon as Storm left the room, David sort of lunged at me and she, he said, you know, you realize <laughs> that we're casting her. And, and I and I said, yes, uh, because uh, it was just one of these things you, you you couldn't walk away from.
0: Yeah, that's awesome when you're able to catch uh, the magic in the casting like that. Um, how tough is it? Listen, I, I think you did a really good job of... Uh, stretching the dollar here, but I can imagine it just, this is a low-budget film, relatively speaking, and you're able to maximize it by being creative and being smart. How much of a challenge was it in terms of budget and just the way that uh, filmmaking has changed now? You know, it seems like either you get a really small budget, you're getting $100 million to make an X-Men movie, and then people are going and using streaming services as well and doing limited series, etc. In terms of the budgetary concerns and constraints, how was it uh, to manage
2: Well, first of all, I come from making uh, really low-budget movies and stretching out uh, the dollar as much as humanly possible. My first movie, Mean Creek, we shot with kids on a river, (laughs) you know, in a boat. Uh, And those are like three things that you're not supposed to be able to do uh, at at a low budget, but we figured out a way to do it then. So we went into the process um, confident that we could stretch, you know, our small budget, uh, in LA. Um, and I had the same cinematographer who I had a shorthand with, Sharon Mayer, who had also shot Whiplash for Blumhouse, uh, and they trusted him. And we, you know, just had to be extremely creative in our, uh, plan, our production plan. So that meant that uh, we've tried to shoot every single thing in the movie within a three and a half mile radius so that we wouldn't have to change base camp very often. That meant that if we went to say uh, uh, an underpass uh, to shoot the opening shot of the movie, as we did, that we try to find like six other things to do in that block, you know, the day of and the night of. Uh, and so um, when you start to think that way and make, creative solutions that way you get to maximize your days and um, we end up actually getting to post-production under budget as a result Um, so uh, that's how we did it
0: that's pretty impressive to do because like (laughs) like you said in today's world
2: these actors these actors can just do it you know you, you do you do a couple takes you do five takes maybe and you feel like you've got it done you know and you feel confident so you move on
0: yeah, I wanted to ask you about any other films, Jacob. Um, your second movie, actually, "The Details," starring Toby Maguire, Laura Linney, Ray Liotta, Dennis Haysbert, Kerry Washington, Elizabeth Banks. Again, acclaimed cast of actors, and uh, again, I, like you said, I'm sure you're, you're doing it by um, being as thrifty as possible. But what was that film like? And to work with a cast like that, relatively early in your career.
2: Uh, I mean, I, I actually happen to love that movie, <laughs> uh, and it, it 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 really sort of the reason you can get a cast like that has to do with the quality of the script, whether the script, you know, is speaking to those, those actors. And uh, I was lucky enough that they liked my script and wanted to go forward with me. Um, and uh, that process was very similar to any other process, including the short films I made in film school. You know, you just get these passionate people uh, and that includes Toby Maguire and Ray Liotta and, and Kerry Washington. And, Dennis Haysbert and Laura Linney and their passion, um, to do the characters, um, and to do the story that you proposed, uh, is what carries, uh, you through production. Um, you're not, you're not giving them the best trailer imaginable. You're not flying them around in a jet first class everywhere. You are just providing them the best possible experience that you know how to provide them. Uh, and, uh, working with them, uh, you know, hand in hand to ensure that their performance is great um, and then hopefully you make a good movie.
0: Uh, lastly here for you, Jacob, obviously as uh, filmmakers and people in the film industry, we all love other movies. Who are uh, some of your favorite filmmakers or some of your favorite movies of all time?
2: Oh, man. Um, I You know, Scorsese is a huge influence. Um, Taxi Driver, uh, Cindy Lume's films across the board are movies that, I love, um, and, uh, it, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a tough question. I, I also like broad comedies starring Steve Martin. So <laughs> the man with two brains is one of my favorite movies that I recommend that everybody see it.
0: Uh, listen, L.A. Story, uh, The Jerk, uh, the, you're right, plane, trains, and automobiles. Steve Martin is great, uh, as is Martin Scorsese with Tax Driver, and you're right about LaMette, The Verdict, Dog the Afternoon, Serpico, so many great ones. Uh, don't Let Go, make sure people go check it out. It's in theaters right now, terrific crime thriller. Jacob Estes, our special guest today. Thank you so much for the time, Jacob, and best of luck with the film and with other films as well.
2: Thanks, thanks, and thanks for having me. Rushmore.
0: All right, when it comes to Mount Rushmore, we rank the four best when it comes to a certain genre. And honestly, we want to leave the category up to you guys. You tell us, what do you want the Mount Rushmore to be? You can tweet me, Pod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E Pod. My friend Nick Durst is running that for me. Or you can tweet me individually, Adnan A-D-N-A-N-S-V-I-R-K. Let me know what Mount Rushmore topic you want to do. That's what we're going to do from now on in the interest of listener engagement and interactivity. Best crime thriller is the topic this time because don't let go is a crime drama, a great list that Joe sent me as far as suggested titles, and so... Let's kick it off with Chinatown, one of the great original scripts of all time by Robert Town. It's all about water, incestuous storyline, incredible acting from Faye Dunaway, John Huston as this monstrous villain, Jack Nicklaus, uh, Jack Nicholson, excuse me, as J.J. Giddies and of course Roman Polanski. You know what happens to those people, right? Huh? They lose their noses. I'm gonna go with Chinatown. Double Indemnity. God, I love that movie. So great from Billy Wilder about a man and a woman concocting. Barbara Stanwyck is perfect as the femme fatale from hell. This also falls in the designation of film noir. It's one of the great film noirs of all time. Fred McMurray as well, and of course, Edward G. Robinson as Keys. You know how I know? My little man tells me. He's on my shoulder. He tells me what's going to happen. I love, I love, I love Double Indemnity. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm also going to include The Usual Suspects. I mean, seriously, where were you when you found out who Kaiser Soze was uh, perfectly scripted by Christopher McQuarrie, who won an Oscar, well-directed by Brian Singer. Unforgettable cast, not only Spacey, of course, but uh, Gabriel Byrne and uh, Benicio Del Toro, Kevin Pollack, Pete Possilwaith as the Pakistani. I mean, that, that whole cast is fantastic, and that is a great crime drama. Um, and I'm going to go with Heat for my last one. I mean, it's just a gangster saga of the highest order. You've got Michael Mann working at the peak of his powers, Pacino and De Niro for the first time together. It's also a family drama. They tie in so many themes within this work that it's just a, a staggering epic achievement. It is a crime thriller. Uh, the bank heist alone is an incredible sequence. The ending shootout is fantastic. Uh, you want to be making moves in the street, have nothing in your life that can stop you in 30 seconds flat when you feel the heat around the corner. Wonderful, wonderful film. I'm going to go with heat. There's, there's lots of great selections here. I mean, listen, I really wanted to find a place for Old Boy. That's an honorable mention. What a great Asian film that is. My friend RT loves that movie for good reason. It's so well scripted. It's so well wrought. Um, that's up there as well. Uh, the Departed, I'm going to classify again as a gangster film, but sure, you could put it as a crime thriller. Memento's a great film as well. So there's lots and lots of great choices, but in the interest of trying to mix things up a little bit, I'm going to go with my Mount Rushmore of Chinatown, Double Indemnity, The Usual Suspects, and Heat. Joe, what do you got? I
1: have The Name of the Rose, 1986, Sean Connery, really young uh, Christian Slater, uh, deaths are happening at a monastery in the 1300s, and Sean Connery is called in to figure out what exactly is going on. I also have All the President's Men, probably the best movie I've ever seen about a real life event, I think, in my uh, entire life. I also have The Silence of the Lambs for so many obvious reasons. But then my favorite crime drama of all time is this movie called Blowout. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Brian De Palma, 1981. John, John, John Travolta. Travolta. And I'm as, as a sound engineer, he plays a sound engineer who inadvertently records a murder, and he has to figure out what happens. So Blowout is my number one, definitely a, a must-watch.
0: Okay, I'm going to upset you, Joe. I've never seen Blowout. I do love De Palma. I have meant to have seen it for years. Just as I mentioned, I've never seen... Uh... That Malick film I'm going to go see, uh, Days of Heaven, I've never seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller from Altman. For De Palma, the big one missing for me is Blowout. I've got to see it now, especially since you've raved about it. I, I always heard it was like kind of um, it was like his homage in some ways to The Conversation, of course, the Coppola film from 74. But uh, I've always wanted to see it. Wow, you got a number one, huh? Number one. It's, it's so,
1: so good. And uh, John Lithgow plays the villain in it. So definitely, definitely watch
0: that. All right, got to find out where Blow It is available because you're right. I definitely have to get on that. I've always wanted to see it. In fact, you got it at number one. Pretty good list here. Tweet us in. Let us know what you think uh, your four would be as far as the top ones. By the way, I'm going to classify Science and Lamb* Lambs as a horror movie, not necessarily as a crime thriller. But yeah, obviously that's a great, great movie. The fact, it won literally in every category. It won all the major five categories. Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay for Ted Tally. a feat which is awfully difficult in Academy circles.
2: The Bada Binge.
0: All right, it is the Bada Binge. So, in case you're new to the podcast, what we do is we recap episode by episode. That's right, Flying Through the Sopranos in its totality. We're now up to season five and the first few episodes. And honestly, for me, this might be the best Soprano season of them all. I'm really partial to Sopranos Season 6 Part 2 and the way they finished the show, but honestly, Season 5 is great because after Season 4, which to me was a bit of a misfire and uneven, Season 5 goes back to the classic roots of the show, which is being very funny while also being the best drama on television. Two Tonys sets it up with a news report of the Class of 04 and a couple of wise guys who gets released, including Feech LaManna, the great Robert loja the legendary... Old school gangster who ran the card game. Tony and Jackie Aprile robbed as young men to get lotus. And Tony's cousin, Tony Blundetto. Steve Buscemi now becomes a part of the crew. As does New York captain Phil Leotardo played by Frank Vincent. A Scorsese regular, of course, you know him from Goodfellas and Raging and Casino. And now he's in the show. Feech makes an instant impression, writes Alan Sepinwall and Matt Zoller cites their great book, The Soprano Sessions. Make sure you check it out. Teach makes an instant impression, striding around the kitchen of Uncle Junior in an undershirt with Loggia snarling out every insult and old story at the top of his lungs. Angela is a more low-key introduction, explaining at a country club lunch with Tony, Johnny, and Carmine, he and Tony B were close friends in prison. Also, Tony, influenced by the Barbra Streisand-Nick Nolte film The Prince of Tides at Valentina's apartment, convinces him to fully act on his feelings he's had for years. So he hits on Dr. Melfi, and she declines politely even after he sends her flowers and asks her for dinner. Melfi's response, you're not a truthful person. You're not respectful of women. You're not really respectful of people. You take what you want from them by force or the threat of force. I couldn't live like that. I couldn't bear witness to violence. Wow, take that, Tony. You know that Dr. Melfi's not going to take that. Episode 2 is Rat Pack. This further um, illuminates the relationship between Tony B., the wonderfully low-key Steve Buscemi, and James Gandolfini's Tony Soprano. Basically, what you know about Tony B, and it's an understated introduction. He's a big ball breaker. Makes fun of Artie for going bald. Uh, the sense of Tony can't help but feeling mocked by Tony B's impression of Jackie Gleason's old Reginald Van Gleason, the third character. Boy, are you fat! It's only when the two Tonys are in the Satrielles' parking lot, Tony Uncle Joni getting high-handed about being the boss, that we get a hint of the dangerous man Tony B once was. You're crowding, B. Tony B says. But despite the insistence of Uncle Junior that all class of O4 are graduates are old rats in a new ship, Blondetta wants to do his own course. That's right, he wants to be a massage therapist. He does not want to get back into the family racket. This episode's also very strong showing what's happening with Adriana. Um, now she really realizes that she's in trouble and she's starting to get more information dealing with guilt. She's got a movie night with the mob wives where the mention of uh, Angie Bop and Sarah illustrates how despised both informants and their wives become. On the verge of confessing her sins, I'm not what you think I am. I don't know what to do. She instead flees in tears, more than ever. But honestly, just as you're getting sympathetic towards Adrian, you realize the fact that she's just like the mobsters with whom she fraternizes. She exploits her FBI connection to rat Tina out for a scam. She and her father are running through her job. Tina was on no one's radar at the bureau, but she's upset that her best friend is flirting with Christopher. Actually, it should be more clearly, Christopher is flirting with her. Um, by the way, in a nice touch, Carmel and the others are forced to stare at the FBI warning about piracy before they can perform deep analysis on Citizen Kane. Adriana says, so it was a sled, huh? He should have told somebody. That's their analysis of one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, Also, episode three, Where's Johnny? You get to hear about uh, Uncle Junior. Uh, He's bloving about the past and what Angie Dickinson looked like. But you also get more insults now uh, between Tony B., And uh, Tony Soprano. Junior's dementia, by the way, is getting much worse. And now they realize this is becoming a real problem. Junior's neurologist tells Tony how serious the condition is. Tony relents, goes to the house of Belleville to find Junior's mind, largely returning to the present. Uh, This allows Tony to address what he sees as the worst part of this whole incident. The fact that Junior always brings up the stuff that Tony hates. He brings up... All the mean stuff. Even Tony says, why is it got to be something mean? Why can't you repeat something good? I mean, don't you love me? It's actually one of the most tender moments you see from James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. He's literally asking his uncle, why do you got to be so mean to me? Why do you got to be so harsh? Why can't you focus on the times you always played catch? Uh, and you see uh, Dominic Chianese's reaction as junior. It's perfect. You know, he's a guy who's dealing with dementia. He has no idea how to respond. You know, whatever you say about Carada Soprano, he is still the one who's always being cruel to his brother's son, which is really sad. And in his fragile mental state, it's almost like you feel like Junior's helpless. He doesn't even know how to respond to Tony's question. Um, as the guys write, Matt and Alan, whether that's from shame, old-school reticence, or the dementia temporarily robbing his ability to speak, it ultimately doesn't matter years gone by with a tighter and tighter grip on junior driving him further apart from the nephew in the here and now those are the first three episodes of season five in the sopranos next time we'll focus on episodes four five and six thank you once again as always for listening subscribe rate and review thanks to jacob estes our special guest fall movie season now coming in earnest so until then i'll see you at the movies